But speaking of wanting to fuck, I guess. Drinking Express. to their will be movies this is our podcast covering 25 of the best movies any given decade this is our third volume where we are covering movies of the 90s uh, this is episode 59 sounds about right yeah sounds about right where we of course are covering one car wise 1994 critical darling starring tony lung chi wai and bridget lynn we are of course talking ashes of time the critically acclaimed Wusha classic. Matthew, what did you think of Ashes of Time? Uh, I, I, well, I think I'm going to improvise my way through the episode uh, as I instead watch Chunking Express. Oh shit, the other uh, movie he released in 1994. Yeah, that one. Okay. I went we'll to great pivot. lengths to try and watch it too. <laughs> we'll, we'll pivot into watching Chunking Express instead, okay? Okay, so, yeah. Right. What did you think of Chunking Express? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would probably have lost the first story and made it entirely the second story, personally. But, uh, yeah, I like the second story. Plenty of fun. Yes, I mean, I mean that, is, that is my overall take, is, like, even even when I rewatch it, I'm like, the first story is, like, it's fine, I enjoy it yeah, mm. as, like, a comparison piece to the opening story, but, like, the second half of this movie is, like, a 12 out of 10 to me, and I just get so wrapped <laughs> up in, like, everything about it, and I'm just like, oh my god, I love everything about this. Yeah. Please just like seeing Tony Leung and Fei Wong just just be charming motherfuckers. For like, I've seen people describe it as the first half. It's like no, 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 no. It's like it's like thirty-five to forty minutes versus over an hour kind of yeah. thing. So um, I, I either would have taken that concept further and done like a third or even a fourth story and made it. You know, like a Paris Chatham, New York, I love you type thing. Oh, we will we will get on to whether or not there is a third piece of this story. <laughs> oh, I do. I, yes. Right. Is that what became Ashes? No, that is what became Fallen Angels. Fallen but Angels, yes. We will, we will discuss this yeah. later on. So, have you seen... What? What's your general relationship with Wong Kar Wai? <laughs> oh, we know each other really well. I, I don't have much of a relationship with him. I've seen In the Mood for Love. I think that might literally be it. Let me just check. Like yes, that's Masters. literally it. <laughs> I don't think I've seen the Grandmaster. That feels like the kind of thing that you might have watched, but like it is quite funny. Like I watched the um so this is tangenting. I watched the other day I did watch Ashes of Time in preparation for this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because okay. I like to go up I like to go above and beyond. And at the moment the two lowest ranked movies I have on my like letterbox ranking of Wong Kar White are Grandmaster and Ashes of Time, both of which are his kind of like martial arts wuxia attempts. Mm-hmm. I think the Grandmaster is that low because it's a horribly botched cut by um, our old friend Weinstein. Ah. Oh, it's it's Ip Man kind of, isn't it? Yeah, it, right. it is. It's Ip Man, but like one can't why doing it, so it's like very like woozy and okay. that kind of that, that kind cool. of vibe. Whereas Ashes of Time is sort of incomprehensible. It's like okay, <laughs> a it's a prequel to like the the Chinese equivalent of Lord of the Rings. Like okay. there's this well known trilogy of books called The Legend of Condor Heroes, which tells all about like five masters of the martial arts and, and all the rest of it. And so this okay. Ashes of Time is a prequel movie about them, but like it's told in such like a aggressively non linear 
and elliptical way that you kind of sit there and go like I, I don't understand what's happening and then when the action happens it's done in the same way that a lot of like the running through Hong Kong streets scenes in this movie are like yeah where it's like not moving at the right speed and it's really uh, out of focus and stuff yeah exactly yeah. So, which really helps when you're <laughs> your options to watch the movie legally are limited shall we say uh, and you're like do I just have a bad version of this? Or... Um, I, mean, I will also get onto my experience as we're trying to watch this movie. So <laughs> the reason why I do want to talk a little bit about Ashes of Time in terms of like its kind of incomprehensibility is Ashes of Time is Wong Kar Wai's attempt at kind of getting back into the, the mainstream books of like Hong Kong cinema at the time, where his, his debut movie is As Tears Go By, which is his kind of like gangster movie. It's got violence, it's got sex. It's really enjoyable, but it's very obvious when you watch it that he enjoys the romance of it all, which is something that you see in pretty much all of his subsequent movies. He becomes like the most, I wouldn't say erotic, but there's definitely like an eroticism to a lot of his movies. There's a lot of like tension, like the entirety of In the Mood for Love is like, come on, just kiss already. <laughs> like, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're, so, yeah, yeah. you're so smoking hot, please just kiss. And that is the stuff that he carries forward. But Ashes of Time is him going like, well, my most successful movie is the movie that starred all these super sexy, massive stars of Hong Kong cinema that's got a little bit of violence in it, so I'm going to try and make Ashes of Time. And he took all of the stars to the Gobi Desert, including, um, as I said earlier, like Tony Lung and Bridget Lin are both in Ashes of Time. Okay. And everyone has like the worst time. Like You're filming in the <laughs> middle of the desert. It, it's not a fun shoot. And then he comes back to Hong Kong to start editing the movie. And I think two months into the editing process, he just kind of goes like, I need to create something because this is taking way too long to edit. And so in the course of like 10 days, he makes and shoots Chunking Express. Like he is writing this movie in the day and then they're shooting in the evenings. Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's just this incredibly like short editing and like shooting cycle. And then the movie comes out two full months before Ashes of Time premieres. Right, yeah. And, and then, that's now the legacy of... Yeah. yeah, exactly. No one remembers Ashes of Time. The Ashes, Ashes of Time is only available in the UK as like a Ashes of Time V-Dux print, which cuts about 10 minutes off the movie. Mm. And Chunking Express has been like lovingly put into 4K as of, <laughs> as of a couple of weeks ago in like a, a Criterion box set. Right, okay. Yeah, and like I, I read that he wrote the, the second story in a day and he hadn't finish the script I think like they made the first story and then they took a break from filming for New Year's and then he wrote and you know finished the script for the second story or whatever yeah like I mean that's that's what gives uh, particularly the second half of the uh, movie such like like forward momentum and energy because it yeah. feels like it's just like oh shit like let's just do something that's so joyous and like obviously he's got like more carefully constructed movies but this really does feel like there's so much youthful, almost studenty exuberance to yeah, the yeah, way this movie's yeah. constructed. Yeah, and like you you can see that thing of like, you know, they're taking a break from you know, it, it's going okay, but like they come back and like they really believe in it. It's like renewed vigour kind of thing, like, no, this is working and, and here's what we can do going forward and like springboard into the next story. Which, yeah, as I said before, just kicks the first story's ass. <laughs> so how 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 I experienced this trying to watch this. This is more like, if anyone at Criterion is listening, please bring your streaming service to the UK. Why don't streaming companies want money? I don't understand it. Like, people over here will subscribe to 
HBO Max and the Criterion Collection and Hulu historically, but I mean, I guess everything on Hulu ends up on Disney Plus over here. But you know, like, why? Why don't you want our money? I know there's rights issues, but your billion dollar companies fucking figure it out. I mean, I have to assume it's just like they look at like the things they've got to contract, and in the US they've got access to everything, and in the UK they're like, oh, fuck, we signed a deal with Sky for 15 years, that means we don't have access to, to put this on there. Like, I was, Goddamn ta- Rupert Murdoch just ruins everything again. I was talking to a friend from Sky who it's very obvious that Sky are trying to consolidate an awful lot of stuff yeah. at the moment. Like They're making these deals with all these streaming companies and Sky are trying to be the dominant way that you watch imported media in the UK. Mm-hmm. Sky um, Atlantic, home of yes. Game of Thrones. And for American listeners, Sky is like the cable packet, like the the most expensive version of Sky, like a hundred dollars a month. It would be for you guys, and it's it's insane. You get hundreds of channels and like two you like, and it's like really not worth it at all. I don't know if that's the experience with American cable, but yeah, it, it's it's very expensive, and uh, everyone hates Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> yep, and so you had to really struggle to find a way to watch this movie in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was quite the experience. I was like, wait, hang on. You mean it's really, really not available anywhere? And you had warned me, but weirdly enough, it is playing at a local arts uh, cinema near me once a day for one week, in the one week I need to see it. And I was like, is this how I'm the only way I can see this is to go and watch it? And I was like, I'll find other means. But yeah. Whereas I, very intelligently, or yes. just, just because I really like Wonka, I bought the Criterion box set with all of these movies that have been res- uh, restored in 4K. I've been watching them like one a week in the run-up to this, so I understand where his career is at. Right. Oh, good of you to have the foresight to do that. I, I, I'm doing all the research for this miniseries. Like, I feel like every single director we've covered so far, I've been like, yeah, I've watched every movie they've ever directed. Like, And I'm not saying you're insane. But I am insane. No, end of sentence. Um. But yeah, so in the process of me watching this, so I was watching uh, the movie before this one, which is Days of Being Wild, mm-hmm. and I'm sat there on my Xbox, I'm like, cool, this is a fun movie, not quite as good as like some of his later stuff, but I'm having a good time. And then the screen like fully pixelates in a way I've never seen happen with his DVD. Like, it looks more like a VHS kind of like distortion. Mm, fun. And I'm like, I'm like, what on earth is happening right now? And then in the process of finding out what's gone wrong is apparently Criterion have printed these discs in such a way that an hour into all of the movies, they stop working on Xboxes, which is how I've primarily been watching Why? these movies. No idea. Just Xboxes don't like these movies after the hour point. Maybe it's the way that like a video game console... So like, could you whack the... this thing in a DVD or a laptop or a PlayStation and it would work? Um, I had to wait until I went home for a wedding this weekend to go grab my Blu-ray player from home to bring it back with me. Which... Uh, oh, is your Xbox your only way of seeing things on a disc in your house? Yes. Okay. Uh, so I literally had to wait until I went home this weekend to get a Blu-ray player. Luckily they worked on that. Um, I did tell my parents like a couple weeks ago that they could have the Blu-ray player, and now I have stolen it to watch the rest of these movies. Excellent. You lied to your parents. I did. Um, I did successfully get to watch it. I did not have to resort to other means. <laughs> I watched this on my nice shiny Blu-ray. It's wonderful. It's a lovely movie. It and... wasn't even available for me to like buy a physical copy of it anywhere. I was like, look, I'll, I'll pay the extra to get it like tomorrow. Where is it? And I couldn't find it. 
I mean, there is. It's just you have to spend about 160 quid on a Criterion box set for it. Yeah. Um, but we got there in the end and I watched it. Uh, I watched the beginning several times with no subtitles, just trying one thing after another. Uh, I started to get the narrative eventually, my fifth, my fifth watch. It wasn't quite a Shape of Water scenario. I think I've told that story on the podcast where I watched all of Shape of Water with no subtitles and thought, wow, how clever that you get the whole story without any kind of subtitles. Weird they wouldn't subtitle the Russian humans, though. Anyway... <laughs> Yeah, you have told that story, but it's still fantastic. I, th- I mean, I, th- if anything, that's a testament to the movie. I recommend watching it without subtitles. It might add half a star to your review. <laughs> Good movie, not the not the best. No, definitely uh, not an Oscar movie. I mean, I appreciate that it won the Oscar. I like when weirdly horny movies win awards. <laughs> the Academy want to fuck bitches is is what we learn. Uh, but before we dive into the actual two stories, mm-hmm. and by two stories I mean we spend predominantly the rest of this podcast discussing about the second movie. Uh-huh. Give me some background context <laughs> on this film, Matthew. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, well, if I go to the, the year of 1994 and look up the box office, oh, it isn't there, Benjamin. Why would that be? Uh, it is because it was released about two years later in the US in 1996. It was actually released in the US under Rolling Thunder Pictures, which was... Quentin Tarantino's like boutique distribution company. So this was when he was like starting his whole cinema stuff, and like he really fell in love with Chunking Express and was like the person pushing it behind it coming to the US. Mm-hmm. And Quentin Tarantino is like very instrumental in Wong Kar Wai's kind of exposure to Western media, and obviously it, it's reached the point now where In the Mood for Love is widely seen as one of the greatest movies of the of the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. But not, an awful lot of not that. good enough for volume one of this podcast. Not good enough for a Hollywood podcast, but yeah, so basically Tarantino saw this movie, I'm not sure how, I mean he's obviously a massive international person, so he probably was like just in Hong Kong and went to go see this movie, and is like, yeah, I'm I'm bringing this to the West, and like, it obviously kicks off, like, Wong Kar Wai is quite a illustrious career after this point, which is doubly funny considering, by most metrics, most people would say that the best movie of 1994 is Pop Fiction. Another movie we're not discussing for this podcast. <laughs> nope. Banal. Boring. See, I, I can understand calling it boring, but calling it banal feels like a step too far. <laughs> Why make a scene two minutes when you can make it 15, you know? Why not just have a full conversation about not anything to do with what's happening? He does shoot Phil Lamar in the face, though. He does do that. Uh, good time. So, yeah. so let's compare and contrast. So, how what opened against this movie in nineteen ninety six? Sorry, yes, in nineteen ninety six, um, it didn't do well, Ben. Um, you but, mean the the movie from Hong Kong, sorry, no reputable faces in the West, didn't do very well at the US box office. It was the eighth best performing new movie of the weekend. It really. Uh, number one was The Birdcage, then Homeward Bound two, Up Close and Personal, Down Periscope. Hellraiser Bloodline, Broken Arrow. Jeez, I haven't thought about Broken Arrow in a while. Rumble in the Bronx, Happy Gilmore, Mr. Holland's Opus, Muppet Treasure Island. If we drop down several spaces to number 15, Fargo opens at 15. Uh, And then we go down a bit further. Uh, We have Braveheart in its 42nd week at number 16. (laughs) Toy Story in its 16th week at 17. And then Heavy Metal... And then the Star Maker, and then there's Chunking Express making thirty-two thousand dollars. <laughs> I know this was a like a popular technique 
back in the day, but like, yeah, like you release it like on middle screens, like Fargo opens on 36 screens, chunking on four, Love Lessons on, on one, like, just just open it like in a really limited thing, don't make much money, and then open wide, but obviously chunking never goes wide, because the final US gross for this movie is is something pitiful, isn't it? It's, it's 600,000, so... <laughs> It's a good multiplier on the six hundred thousand, on on the thirty-two thousand, but like, yeah, like not, not a whole lot. Forty-two weeks for Braveheart—that's <laughs> that's insane. That's the biggest they, number I've ever seen in on, on that column on this website. <laughs> they will never take his freedom. That they won't. Don't. I, I. My entire childhood is my father, who is the most Scottish man who ever lived, uh, just ranting at me about all the inaccuracies of, of Scotland and Scottish history in that movie. It kind of ruins the experience a bit. Anyway. Uh, yeah, but if, if this movie had opened the weekend in 1994 like it was supposed to, mm-hmm. you could have seen Wolf, Speed, The Flintstones, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, <laughs> and Getting Even with Dad. Hell yeah. A lot less interesting box office, I must say, than, than the one that you just read. A little bit. <laughs> 42 weeks! You need to you need to dive into the the box office gross of uh, Big Fat Creek Web. Oh yeah, that like was forever, wasn't it? It was, it was like it took a year, and it was like the highest grossing comedy of all time. Was, was like, it, it basically every Greek family in the entire world just went to see it every week? I think it's just like the ultimate word of mouth hit that's ever happened. Like just just a movie that is completely propelled along by the fact that. Like people would meet each other and go, like, oh, you know that, that Greek wedding movie? Yeah, it's really good. You need to go see it. Uh, did not happen with Chunking Express. I didn't, though... I didn't foresee my big fat Greek wedding coming up in this episode. And that was naive of me. And I'm sorry, listeners, I can do better. <laughs> uh, right. So 1994, as we said, is kind of well known for... I mean, it really is like the 1994 movie is Pulp Fiction. Yes, I've like, heard even... of it. Even the narrative of the Oscars is like, wow, I can't believe Forrest Gump wins over Pulp Fiction. I can. But like, let, let's just go over some like critical darlings in 1994. You've got Pulp Fiction. Yes. You do have this movie. You've got Three Colors Red. You've got Shawshank Redemption. You've got Forrest Gump. You've got Edwards. Uh, you've got Hoop Dreams, a movie which has been covered on this podcast. Mike Thomas's favourite ever movie. There you go. 170 minutes long. Yes, I bet you had a great old time watching it. I had a fantastic time. As a huge basketball fan, I did not enjoy Hoop Dreams. Hey, he's a teacher. There you go. Like so, so obviously this is a movie that's got a lot of critical claim, but like it, in terms of the critical conception, it's like Pulp Fiction is sort of the be-all and end-all. Yes, Pulp. and, you know, 30 years on, people are still waxing lyrical. Um, I believe it took top place on Jerome's 100 movies. It is his favourite movie of all time. Okay, I believe it might be Kevin Ford's as well. I think that came up on their Simpsons podcast. Our clapback episode is coming soon, don't you worry. We've got it our... is. It is not even my top two Tarantino movies, so... <laughs> what are your top two? Uh, it's, it's Inglourious Bastards and Jackie Brown, my top two. Okay, those has been mine as well, I think. <laughs> Jackie Brown's the one I like, and I begrudgingly enjoyed myself with uh, Inglourious Bastards more than I thought I would in... Uh... They're actually a complete tangent now. I'm I'm losing complete control of this episode, but I do have to bring this up. Um, Christoph Waltz did an interview recently where apparently, oh no, it was Tarantino did an interview recently where he was talking about Christoph Waltz behind the scenes on Inglourious Bastards, and he flat out refused to let other people rehearse with him. (laughs) 
Because like, he wanted during... to walk into the room and like just make everyone uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he when they did the table read, he was like, pitch it at a six. Uh-huh. Like just don't rise above it. If other people like try to battle you to win the scene, let them win. Mm-hmm. And then when you were on set, you can unleash the fury, <laughs> the fury of what you're allowed to do. So like every single scene that Christoph Waltz is in, the people he's acting against, apart from in the opening scene with the the father and the milk. It was like, well, like this, is- this guy was only okay in rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like they are completely shocked by what he's doing. And I'm like, oh, that that's a fun story. That's yeah. like, and I hope a lot of them haven't seen his work in other stuff as well. And they were like, who the fuck is this guy they found? He's like so bang average. Why did he get this role? <laughs> uh, but speaking of sexy I mean, foreign men, speaking of sexy foreign men, uh, actually, I want to I want to pivot into what is so obviously Hong Kong cinema. Mm-hmm in the run-up to this, is is so massively focused on action cinema. Like, even, even when I was mentioned beforehand, like, Wong Kar Wai started doing action cinema, and I feel like that's more your bag. Yes. Like, like, like Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, uh-huh. uh, Hard-Boiled John Woo, that kind of stuff. Like, like what's your relationship to, to Hong Kong cinema in the run-up to this? Uh, I mean, you know, you've just name-checked several of them. Like, that is far more my bag. Mr. Jonathan Wu. Uh, is my jam, and yeah, you know the 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 pre coming to America works of Jackie Chan also amazing. Um, I honestly I haven't seen enough. It, it's it's something that like you know I I have had a sort of surface level taste and I enjoy it a great deal, and it's like influenced so much of the stuff I like, and you know like <laughs> video games are not movies, but you know I I tremendously enjoy video games like Sleeping Dogs, which is set in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's something, you know, I've always meant to dip more in now I'm an adult who will watch movies. Uh, something that it, it doesn't have to entirely be punching and kicking and everything. So, like, uh, I, I've always meant to dip in more. And, like, Wong, Wong Kar Wai is someone who I, I I should watch more than one of his movies, I think. Uh, or two now. But, yeah, I mean, it, I'm a very basic bitch here, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it is John Wood. But you have seen... The Sexiest Man Alive, Tony Lung, in two movies at least, with Hard Boiled <laughs> and Infernal yeah. Affair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, we covered it, sort of, Infernal Affairs, didn't we? We did, we yeah. did. And it was like, I mean, it, it's weird to think that, like, I don't think we covered it much, but, like, Andy Lau in Infernal Affairs is, like, seen as one of the like, biggest stars in Hong Kong. Yeah. Like, like there is an era in the 90s called the, the Four Heavenly Kings era, yes. where... There are these four like just otherworldly pop stars who are also actors and are also doing movies and like three of them do movies with Wong Kar Wai mm-hmm. and only one of the movies that they do with him is a success. <laughs> it goes that way, you know. <laughs> so, like I just can't imagine like it's it's such an alien concept to me that like the closest we really have to that in the West is like you do have your like multiple threats, like people who can do, like they can sing, they can dance, they can do stage, they can do film, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But like, is Justin Timberlake like <laughs> the oh, the closest we have to the idea of like someone can release a number one album and then also go star in the number one film in the same week? Yeah, I mean, you've got Jennifer Hudson, you've got Tessa Thompson, but, uh, you know, I I mean, Tessa Thompson's music is like small and weird, kind of. I I really like it, but yeah, she's not really anyone. one. Um, you know, I guess once upon a time you had Will Smith, but his star yes. faded in both <laughs> arenas. Um, yeah, I mean, it, not to the same way. And like, 
I feel this is a thing in general in, in East Asian cinema, like the ability of musicians to cross over and be like really good actors is surprising. Or to take it the other way, the star power of actors is so great that they release an album and people don't laugh at it, they buy it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like even a Donald Glover, like yeah, 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 a hugely talented person can release your number one album, can win yeah. Grammys, can be in critically lauded TV shows, but still not a movie star. No, like, which is surprising. You can't put, yeah, you can't put Donald Glover front of a film and go like, "Cool, this is going to be a hit." Like, I bet you the closest could. he's had to that. I bet you could. He just hasn't had one. Like, he's in Solo, well, obviously for sure. But he's in Solo, and he's. Probably one of the best things about Solo. He's, he's also Billy Lion King. Yeah, but like that's such a different animal. I bet if you put Donald Glover in the middle front of a poster, that movie does well. Because let's be honest, he is an incredibly attractive man. <laughs> he is an incredibly attractive man. I just, I just wonder if like all of his like creative energy goes into Atlanta and his TV stuff, and he just doesn't want to commit. I, I could see him writing a movie that is amazing because you know yeah he's popped up in movies and like as at one point he was trying to be in like you know he's in like the to-do list with Aubrey Plaza and stuff like that and like he pops up in the Martian and then like steals the show for like 60 seconds and then fucks off and but no yeah I I don't know if like Solo burned him on trying to do blockbusters and like the Lion King doesn't quite work out maybe how he wants it but I for sure think he's got a hugely successful critical acclaimed movie in him when he wants to do that. Is his Mr. and Mrs. Smith a movie or a TV show? Ooh. I want to say it's a TV show, and that yeah, I mean, but... he said some shit about people not being very original, and it's like, your next thing is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> this episode could be the most tangenty one we've ever done. I'm enjoying it, I'm enjoying it. Right. Finally, the movie. So... Yes, we're both we're both agreed. The first story is fine. Yeah, I mean there is that it has its moments. Um, I, I I do think it is better when you kind of like dig into the the elliptical nature of it and the contrast and the comparisons to to the second story. Um, I do enjoy both of these stories are fundamentally about men are fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. First dude uh, is a full on train wreck. Just what the shit, man. <laughs> like I I love that he's like. He's calling his ex-girlfriend's house, talking to each of her family members in turn, and they're like, you want to talk to your ex-girlfriend, right? He's like, no, 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 I told Oh, you no, I, I told Yeah, that's a very normal thing we all do. Let's call our exes, like, mother, father, sister, other sister. <laughs> oh, I don't want to talk to May. No, no, not at all. Oh, you're just heading out the door. I'll talk to your husband. Well, he's probably going with her, you dipsh. <laughs> like, I just, like, everything he does is so, like, it took me a while to, like, figure out, like, is is the movie on his side or not? And it's like, I think the movie's on his side of, like, the processing of his heartache, but it's still very much going, like, this man is an idiot. He's a mess, man. Like, (laughs) like, I mean, to, to, when it descends into, like, being full-on incel harassment stuff, where, like, Bridget Lynn does not want to talk to him. (laughs) I'm like, oh, dear. I I will say, him trying in different languages. Yes. Just to say, do you like pineapples? Uh-huh. And her not giving a fuck until he finally says it in um, Cantonese. Is it is it or Cantonese or Mandarin? He finally like. Oh, I think I think he tries in Cantonese first and goes, "Oh, she might not be Cantonese." And I think Matt, she says, "Your Mandarin's not bad." I think yes, he tries in all three variants of Chinese and English. And I was like, "Whoa, this is just not a thing that happens." 
here, but must be quite normal in many countries. <laughs> you just have to, especially when you you know you think about something like this, like trying to hit on a stranger, and it's like you have to run the line multiple times and make it sound natural, kind of thing. <laughs> like, and I think it's on some level it's kind of interesting they're both cops. Like we're so used to cops having to look so fucking smooth and cool and sexy, and they have so many problems. And this dude's just a fucking pathetic loser. <laughs> He's like, how are you a cop? <laughs> like, having having watched a couple of one guys in in the world up to this, like what like he does like his cops. Like there is a couple of cops in in Days of Being Wild, and I I do quite enjoy that their job is seems very similar to like a toilet check at like a restaurant, <laughs> where like there's these repeated scenes of them picking up like the check check-in book that they've got and saying like, like I've checked this area at this time and whatnot. Yeah, like, it feels a little bit more wardeny than like the kind of cops we're used to in especially in TV and movies. Like I mean, you know, he does do some chasing and he like busts up up kind of thing. And even when he does that, he's like, "Oh, it's been months since I caught anyone." <laughs> I don't know. Like I mean, it, it may just be like crime is very different there and like you know maybe crime rates are lower and i don't know maybe he's just in a particularly not i mean well i think something that interested him about making the movie is that it is such a like it is a big place for crime I, but i think it's more you know smuggling and drugs and that kind of thing and less like murder <laughs> but although yeah. you know bridget lynn does <laughs> commit a murder but it's a couple of murders <laughs> yeah sure does yeah i will say like I was worried in that first story when we spent too much time with Bridget Lynn. I was like, I don't think I like this movie because I'm like, I was like, what is she doing? What is her game? Like, who is she talking to? For what reason? What is happening here? Um, yeah, that it, it is kind of Wong Kar Wai at his most kind of like, I'm holding things back. And it's like, yeah. you don't understand that like, she's obviously like, she's trained this group of Indian people to basically smuggle drugs. And I do enjoy the montage that's like kind of a little bit disorientating of like all the things they're doing and collecting and buying and then you yeah. finally get the scene where they're like putting all the the drugs into like the the bottoms of their shoes and mm -hmm. shoving up their asses and yeah. putting it into like the pregnancy stuff and i enjoyed the machinations of that but then the actual showing of like what went wrong yeah. is like so vague it's like they went on a plane and then presumably she waited there for them to come back because they only flew probably like an hour or two, considering it was probably like from Hong Kong to mainland China, mm -hmm. is is probably like the extent of how far they travelled, and they didn't arrive back. And yeah. then she like realizes that shit's in danger, and she needs to go kill a drug warlord. But like, it very much <laughs> is like the movie does not explain any of this to you. And no, your like vibes you have to figure out like what's going on. Yeah, and you know it is interesting. Like, I mean, I'm potentially showing some cultural ignorance here, but like. The way the narrative is very much that they don't like foreign people in in the Far East, if we put it that way. Like in Japan, the term is gaijin, and and like you know, to see like so many Indian people in Hong Kong, which and I know I Hong Kong, I think is a bit more of a cultural melting pot, likely due to it being conquered so many times, and like you know, it was part of the British Empire, which may be how you get an Indian population there. But you know, like obviously in our own countries, we know there are like very diverse, you know, there are a lot of people from all over the place and, like, there are entire sectors or, you know, you know Chinatown as a, as, a, as, a, as a concept is in every country in the whole world. But, like, it, it struck me as slightly unusual to see Indian people in, in this Hong Kong movie where, like, I don't know, 
I not that I never considered that Indian people lived there, but it was just, it was kind of startling to see them in a film like this and like basically being her like <laughs> like drug mules kind yeah, of like, thing. Yeah, like like they're they're ultimately second class citizens. Like she's not paying them much money to go do this thing. Yeah. Presumably, like the guy who's at the bar who's been like giving her the the sardine cans is like. Mm-hmm. Like giving her her countdown for when she's going to die if she doesn't deliver the drugs on time and stuff like that. Like she's obviously paid them off because, like, he just wants her dead. Like again, like the the motivations behind the crime of it all are mm. vague at best. Yeah, and um, and when it was like really lost in that, I was like, I am going to have an unpleasant time tomorrow evening talking about this. But then, uh, you know, God love him, a complete train wreck. But cop two two three does. Entertain, I suppose, <laughs> as he's he, buying up pineapples. He, he eats thirty cans of pineapples. I no, literally, I was like, "Wait, you're not eating them every day?" <laughs> like he saved them all for the day they're going off. Like he, so his girlfriend May leaves him on April Fool's Day. He gives it thirty days for her to change her mind and come back to him. And he goes around at all the convenience stores buying tinned pineapples that go off on May 1st. And that obviously gets more difficult as you get closer to May 1st. Because, like, that convenience store guy is like, dude, I don't fucking stock stuff that's gone out. Like, here, have a box of expired goods. And then not even the houseless person wants. <laughs> what, what? I, mean, I think that's, that's what, like, really won me over. Is, like, even when I'm yeah. kind of, like, scratching my head trying to figure out what's going on here... It's still very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which I think that like when he takes the woman in the blonde wig home, like, and they're in her hotel room, and he's like, "Yeah, I ordered like x many pieces of food and watched old movies and like buffed her shoes," and it's like, "Oh god, yeah. this is fucking tragic." That like he's so <laughs> yeah, but he takes her shoes off while she's sleeping and polishes them with his tie, and then just neatly puts them by the bed, and he's like, you know. When she said she wanted to rest, uh, <laughs> like he thought he was getting laid, and then she just fell asleep. And I don't know if like he paid for that hotel room or or whatever, but yeah, he basically just orders room service or something, and and just watches stuff on TV. Yeah, it's very sad. <laughs> and then, and then goes out for his like lonely jog that he only does when he's alone because like his speech earlier on where like jogging is something. Jogging is a private thing. <laughs> Jogging is private, not for an audience. And he jogs to lessen his body's moisture so he can't cry from his breakup. And he's so sure this is a thing other people do because someone says they've been jogging. He's like, "Oh, have you just gotten? Have you just broken up with someone?" Like, no, you fucking weird. <laughs> I I do love like everything about him as a train wreck, including the first phone call he gets from someone who isn't. Or like the first message he gets, and he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you've been called. You've been told by May to call me." And he's like, "No, no, I've not. Like, <laughs> I'm asking if you want to go for a jog with me." And he's like, "No, jog, like again, jogging's like jogging is private." <laughs> and then he's like calling seemingly just other women, you know, seeing if they will go out with him. And then his old friend or someone he used to have a crush on is married with children. He's like, "Oh." <laughs> Oh yeah, we haven't spoken in five years. Maybe maybe I need to nurture these relationships. A bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is—it's all more fun to talk about than to watch. I mean, you know, there is a charm to his patheticness, and like, you know, it's—it's it's almost a heroic acting performance when you know he he approaches 
woman in blonde wig, as she is credited, in the bar, and is just cracking on tour, and she's like, please leave me alone. <laughs> he just keeps going on and on and on and on. Yeah, and like, he's so sad that, like, you know, she wishes him happy, but she leaves a message with the hotel or whatever to, to like, call him and wish him happy birthday. He's like, I will remember her for my entire life. I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> And then and then he goes to his like normal sack food place yeah. and bumps into their new staff member Faye and you get a a repeat of his like the scene where he like bumps into the woman in the blonde wig and it's like 0.01 centimeters is the closest we ever got and you're like oh is this going to be like a love triangle he's going to be the main character of this next story and they're yeah. like nope we're bringing in true hunk Tony Lung Chui to go flirt with Faye Wong for an hour and you're like oh my god. Seal my heart, you, you sexy, sexy man. Soon will, to be the Mandarin. I will say that he's able to maintain a shred of sexiness when, I don't know, a third of his scenes, he is in a white vest and white fronts slash tighty whities Like, that's quite a look. Um, but no, he, he's hot, it turns out. Um, we, we, we asked the audience hot or not, and they said hot. Yeah, he is... He is his, it's a much more entertaining story, like, straight away. Like, him dropping into the same, like, snack bar. And, like, you know, he wants the chef salad because that's what his girlfriend likes. And the owner talking him into trying exotic foods like fish and chips and pizza. And, again, a mindfuck. Because, you know, we've been in the inverse situation where it's like, oh, do you, <laughs> you know, would your girlfriend like this Asian dish? And it's like, ooh, that's a bit, that's a bit out there. I don't know if I'll try that. And that's how it is for fucking pizza. <laughs> and like the line about like you know he, he successfully convinces him to try fish and chips and then like when he comes back a couple of nights later and she's she's left him it's like trying other dishes made her try other men basically <laughs> <laughs> like introducing variety into her life it's like oh wait I don't have to go out with this guy uh, and then yeah just this, this this lady that likes very loud music wins his heart or how how sick did you get of california dreaming whilst watching this movie <laughs> never amazing song <laughs> uh, it, it, it genuinely like the first thing i did after it finished was listen to the song again yeah. which feels insane but like my partner was watching in a different room and obviously i'm watching on television right so she's just hearing it blare in every like 25 seconds <laughs> and she's like oh my god if this movie plays california Dreaming, it makes sense in the narrative <laughs> yeah one of the funniest letterbox reviews I read for this movie is uh, I sometimes wonder if what separates early one Carl Wife from the Zach Braff movie is Christopher Doyle, who we do need to shout out the cinematographer who does yeah. fantastic work on this movie, uh, and a better taste in music. And oh. it's like, <laughs> ouch. Because <laughs> didn't Zach Braff end up like picking like a lot of the music in Scrubs and stuff? I feel that's like, I don't know if it's an urban legend, but like, yeah, he's like a massive music guy and picks all the music in his stuff. The Garden of State's obviously like his one. I believe yeah. a lot of the music in, in Scrubs was done by Bill Lawrence's wife, who obviously played Jordan. Yeah. Yes. We've been rewatching Scrubs from the start recently, so yeah, very prescient. But yeah, I mean, like you said, Christopher Doyle, like, you know, it's his apartment that they are. Uh... <laughs> cohabiting but not i believe and yeah i mean it, it looks great for the budget they made it on for sure actually christopher Doyle probably is one of the like great cinematographers like he does almost every one car one movie up to this point i think they stopped working together after 2046 
it's weird because like every movie he's done with Wong is kind of like absolutely fantastic and then his other attempts at other movies are like really you did cinematography on that like he did the cinematography on the 1998 Psycho remake right the Vince Vaughn one which is just a shot for shot remake and it's more like Gus Van Sant doing like a a film (laughs) exercise or anything (laughs) he did the film the cinematography on Hero which I've not seen as in Jet Li Hero amazing gorgeous yeah, so he, he shot that, and then his like next big American credit is Lady in the Water, the M. Night. Yeah. Yes. Um, the Beach Makes You Old, and gets five stars from Ben. It uh, does get five stars from Ben. Well, four and a half stars. <laughs> four and a half, sorry. Sorry, you coward. Five. This gets five stars from Ben. Okay, fair enough. I, I will say, as much as I immediately enjoyed the second story... It took a while for me to like mentally let go of the first one. I like kept expecting it to loop back around and all connect more than it did, beyond just, you know, the literal like they go to the same place kind of thing. And I was like waiting for it to all click back into place. And when I just left that behind me and just enjoyed these two flirting with each other quite badly, <laughs> I had a much better time. And like, you know, once credits roll and I'm able to look back on it and now we're talking about it, I'm able to enjoy even the first story, like I, like I wouldn't say I actively enjoyed watching all of it, but like it's more fun to talk about and to consider in contrast, like you said, um, and to, yeah, like, I mean, like, to take the second one as its own thing almost um, is is lovely. And I I do wish he could have just gotten like eighty ninety minutes out of that second story, and I think he could have, to be honest. Oh yeah, I mean I think there's there's more to mind there. It's just it's quite like I, I do think there are like the interesting things are like the the contrast like. The, the sardine cat hands obviously appear in both stories where uh-huh. in in the first story they're a sign of like this is the date that you're gonna you're gonna die i'm gonna keep giving you sardine cans that expire on the first uh, first of may mm-hmm. and then in the second story she like changes his sardine can brand yes. for, and like changes <laughs> what a little troll she is and like at what point do you think he knows I think that's that's the wonderful question about this is like uh-huh. does he ever understand that like so in the movie, the the ex girlfriend, the flight attendant of of Cop Six Six Three, gives a letter explaining presumably why she's left him, yes. uh, and leaves it at the snack bar. Too and... sexy, turns out. You can be you can be too sexy. <laughs> and basically, everyone in the in the food in the food uh, in the like in this cafe or whatever um, ends up like reading the letter because they're a whole bunch of like yeah. nosy people. Yeah, and discover that. They, she's left her apartment keys in this in this letter, and Faye takes it upon herself to essentially break into his apartment every day whilst he's at work mm-hmm. and be his maid. I mean, yeah, but I mean it's a like it's Steve a bit of a journey. Like she's dicking around, she's taking advantage of it. Then she starts doing nice things, and then she's doing like nasty things again, almost. And it's like, what is your game here? <laughs> Uh, and she, does, to her credit, she does try and get him to take the letter, and he keeps refusing. And I'm like, why? Like, I guess it's like, I think he knows the gist of it. She left him, and he doesn't want to know the details yet. And maybe he doesn't know that there's a key in there. Yeah, he's just very like, ah, I'll, I'll hold it for me. I'll get it another day. And when she runs into him at that other, like, he changed shifts at some point, so she has to go find him at some other place in the daytime. And she's very like, are you going to be here for like? Oh, I don't know, thirty to sixty minutes, so I can go fuck around in your house, basically. I mean, that's that's why my my read on this movie is that he's just an idiot. I think so. I think he's a himbo. I think he's a beautiful idiot. 
Because, um, like, it's the scene where he's talking to the Garfield plush, and it's like, no, no, no. Surely you know this is a different stuffed animal you are talking. And the other thing, he talks incessantly to everything in his house. He tells the soap bar that is obviously getting gradually smaller, oh, you have lost weight. And he tells the, his towel that is dripping wet that it is crying. And yes, he talks to... And he has a weird number of stuffed animals. I don't know if they're supposed to be the ex-girlfriends, but yeah, and he talks to them, and he's literally... Lo- she's been changing things in his house. Like, she swaps his... Uh, the mug in his in his bathroom, uh, you know, that he puts his toothbrush in. She changes, I think she changes the towel. She gives him a, a new soap bar, so then he's like, oh, you've put on weight. And it's like, are you genuinely insane? Or do you know when you're just going with it? <laughs> but, like, he's so fucking charismatic and sexy whilst doing this stuff. And it's like, yeah, sure, I, I completely buy that this man would talk to everything in his house and be, like, this, like, weirdly melancholic poetic about it all. Mm. Like, is it, I think... Is it when he... Do you do you long for him to beckon, lean in, and just say, chef salad? <laughs> oh, God. Also, question. Do you have a thing for people rubbing feet, Benjamin? Because I look back to Call Me By Your Name. And your desire for a possible cannibal army hammer to rub your feet. And then I look at this and I'm like, hmm, Benjamin. I, I just, Tony Lung's just a sexy man. Well, uh-huh. I, I, asked, uh-huh. I actually asked a friend the other day, like, is Tony Lung the, the first sexy Marvel dad? And I got proven wrong quite quickly. But yeah, like, there's a lot he's, of good Marvel dads, unfortunately. He's definitely the best looking Marvel dad. <laughs> yeah. A very good get for them, I will say. And, like, maybe a lot of people in the West won't understand what a good get that is. But, yeah. And to think that, you know, to watch this and, like, this was 30 years ago. And he he still looks good and young and in shape now. And it's like, you know, I guess he just looks after himself. But, yeah, just, like, what an idiot. And, you know, like, she brings... She, <laughs> she gets him more fish for his fish tank. He doesn't notice... He opens the door as she's about to come in, and she manages to play that off. And they oh, just I came, I came here to to buy, buy goldfish. goldfish. <laughs> like what? Um, and they just hang out for a bit. And it's like you know, it's very much like she is clearly has fallen in love with him, and we are told that she will fall in love with him before they even meet each other because it's you know the not point not one centimeters in twelve hours or forty hours, whatever it is she will fall in love with another man. So we know that. And it's like, you know, seeing him just sort of casually be like, eh, she's kind of hot, I like her. Like, you know, when when they he like carries stuff for her and he's very much like, oh, I live down there, here's my address, come by sometime. And like, he does sort of try it on with her a little bit when she's in the house and she just seems to want to get the fuck out of there. I don't know if she's just introverted or like, is she the Eastern equivalent of a manic pixie dream girl? Like... I mean that that is I mean that was the review on Letterboxd I read is like is she a manic pixie dream girl but it's like yeah. I, she very she sort of is but like I appreciate the, the the way that this story is being told because obviously like so much of this movie is about the use of space yes and, they like, cohabit the, the same space but not yeah, exactly. literally yeah, yeah like they they are in the same space and it's like can you fall in love with someone just through being in the same space as them is yeah. is an idea that the movie posits, and it's like they don't have that many scenes where they're like face to face and talking in like long ways. Like most of it's quite transactional, and yeah, and she's like t- 
telling him off for talking to another lady, and he's like, "Huh? What the fuck are you talking about? I'm just, I'm just hot cop who talks to people and buys food." <laughs> like, yeah, and like you know, is she falling in love with him because of like, is she like taking in all of his weird little things he has around his apartment, and like that's making her fall in love with him? And it's like. Like, is she embarrassed? Is it like you're ruining it by actually being here and I like the idea of you more or whatever? Because she wants she seems to want to get the fuck out of there when 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 he invites her in, it's like, oh no, stay longer. And then he puts on California Dreaming and he's like, Oh yeah, this is my ex's. And she's like, I left that CD here four days ago in the narration. <laughs> it's like, does he know that? Like again, like at what point does he know? Is he just so like, oh, I guess this was hers? It's it's the Garfield where I'm like, surely, surely now you know. But I don't yeah. think he does. So much of this movie is like very unhealthy behaviour, but it's done in such like an adorable way where it's like she obviously is trying to build this like artificial life with him by like literally breaking into his apartment mm-hmm. and he is obviously he is dealing with the breakup in a more healthy way than Cop two two three was in the in the first story, but yeah, like, Cop two two three at least gets a name six six three. Like you know, woman in blonde wig, cop six six three, man, ex girlfriend. Like these are these are the names of most of the characters. And, but again, I think it just it just lends like an energy to the movie. Where it's like, yeah, you don't need to know the names. It's yeah, just, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> just hot people flirting. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's essentially what this movie is. This yeah. movie is is pure vibes with a banging soundtrack. Yeah, just watching people. Essentially, yeah. for, for like, an hour. The ex-girlfriend, like when they run into each other in the convenience store, like she has, she's like just dripping with sex and stuff, and like it's very almost chaste when uh, you know he says like everyone dreams of seducing a stu- uh, Anna hostess. I I did it a year ago or whatever, and like you see them like play fighting around the apartment, and then him being a very sexy man parking planes on her naked back and stuff. <laughs> It is full of so much energy, and and like she, uh, Faye, like finds. Does she put on the flight attendant uniform? She does. She puts on the flight attendant uniform, but she's wearing the gloves at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the, and then like he leaves it on the floor, mm-hmm. or, or she leaves it on the floor, and he comes in and goes like, "Oh, that's where you got to." And it's like <laughs> she like stole it and was like wandering around with it. Yeah, and like does that influence her decision to become a flight attendant? Because you know the. <laughs> They finally are like, he like asks her out and she wants to go to California as in the place. And then he asks her on a date to a bar called California uh, or a restaurant or whatever. And she doesn't show up, but she kind of does and just watches him because weird. And then she just fucks off to America for an undetermined amount of time, I think. Well, I mean, year, uh, I it, yeah, the, the implication is that like she gives him a boarding pass that's dated for a year later and is like, one she scribbles on a napkin, by the way, very cute. Yeah, and I think the implication is that like she's gone to go sort out what she wants in life. Like this is like something she wants to do, and it's like before I I actually talk to this guy and we settle down into into a thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna go go to California and achieve my dreams essentially. Yeah, and bum about Europe, but yes, yeah. it's, it's America. Yeah. <laughs> but but because again. This movie likes to be about idiotic men. He like doesn't open this letter either. I know. Leaves it, it in does. the rain. <laughs> and also, I'm begging this fucker to drink black coffee from an appropriate vessel because he <laughs> drinks it from like paper cups. I think he drinks it from a clear glass at one point, which is just the behaviour of a psychopath. I don't know why. There's no reason you can't do that, but it's wrong. 
I mean, I, I don't know if that's like a translation thing. But it sure, does feel I'm insane sure. because, like, it feels like because I know that, like, in in Asian countries, like, I don't know if, I, like, when they have tea out there, obviously, like, you can have those like cooler, like, very very milky teas that are made with condensed milk and stuff like that. Uh, like, I don't know if it's just it is a, a translation where it's like, well, the stupid Westerners will never understand what it is he's actually drinking. Right, so, right, 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 right. If it is black coffee, then yes, you are correct. It is that it is the work of a psychopath. <laughs> Yeah, but it could be like a like a black tea or you know, something that yeah. like no one would have known about at the time. So yeah, but like yeah, the, fact, the fact that he's been handed this like gl- like plastic container, it's like no, that'd be way too hot if that's fresh black coffee. <laughs> like drinking out of a, a paper Coca Cola cup and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, again, he refuses to open letters. It's just it's just not his thing, you know. Some people don't answer the phone. He doesn't open letters. But I mean, again, I I love. I love the romance of, like, mm-hmm. her come back a year later expecting to find him in the California bar. Mm-hmm. And when he's not there, she, like, crosses over to go find her uncle's snack bar, which maybe she still has forgotten to pay the bills for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she keeps lying to say she's going to pay the electric bill and then doesn't actually pay it and the power goes out and it's very funny. And then she finds out that, that Cop 663's had a change of heart and decided to start selling food. And Yeah, he bought the bar and... Uh... You know, like, he 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 fell for the flight attendant as a woman in uniform. She liked him as a cop in uniform. And then, you know, Faye dresses very casually, shall we say. And he's often in his, his very fancy uniform. And then their roles are reversed. And she has become a flight attendant. And, and he is wearing, like, check shirts. And they're both like, I like you like this. I like you like this. And it's like, ah. And she writes him a new boarding pass. And it's it's all very cute. Lovely. Like, I, I love... Just the every vibe about this movie. Yeah, like I don't know. Like, got there's there's more to it than can be talked about. Is the thing. It, it is just it is a vibe, as you said. Um, yeah, like because I mean, that's the thing. Is like when I when I was watching it, I was like, right, what am I going to score this on my rewatch? Is it going to be like a four or four and a half? Because like the first story is kind of like it, it's it's good. It gets better in context, and then every single second that the second story is going on, like like no, this is. This is like a masterpiece in my eyes. Like I could mm-hmm. happily watch these two forever. Um, yeah. But just chemistry, just just romance, just vibes, just just everything I love, and it kind of is like yeah. this is this is why cinema is so good. And yeah. and you know, if only that were the whole story. Um, and and I don't think we actually came back to it. What happened to the proposed third story, Benjamin? So the proposed third story was going to be uh, one guy who wanted to write a, a movie about a, a lovesick um, hitman, mm-hmm. um, but basically decided that it would make this movie too long because he was, I mean, one of your favourite things, barely <laughs> any of his movies are over 90 minutes long. Fuck yeah. Respects my time. Therefore, I respect him. Uh, and so he decided to make a movie for the next year called Fallen Angels, which is, again, two stories, um, I, it's one of the two Wong Kar Wai movies I've not seen, so I will be rectifying that. I will see Fallen Angels and I will see Happy Together, which is his a movie which I, I don't think I'm going to be able to deal with because it's Tony Lung and Leslie Chung, who is another <laughs> incredibly sexy man, basically being in a gay relationship and like making out a whole lot. Oh no! Um, I <laughs> like I, I don't know how yeah. I'm going to deal. <laughs> And I finally watched that movie. So speaking of Happy Together, I guess just as a maybe a final note, um, a lot of Western music. Um, you know, we, we we touched on California Dream, and you've also got What a Difference a Day Makes. 
uh, day made, sorry, uh, things in life. You you have a a cover of a Cranberries song, Dreams by Cranberries. I believe is it sung by Fei Wong? It's sung by Fei Wong. I I, don't, I think the is the original version of Dreams in the movie, or is it? Only I don't think the... so. No, I think yeah. it is always um, the, the cover. Yeah, but interesting to to feature so much Western music and it I mean, all works obviously... and it's all really cool and everything, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, canto pop is a big thing, but, like, I think mm. it's impossible to overestimate, like, the influence that Western culture had on Hong Kong in particular yeah. at this time. Because, obviously, like, we are still in 1994, three years away from yeah. the British Empire giving back Hong Kong to China. Yeah. Um, Huge plot point of Rush Hour 1. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you not remember? It's, it's been it's... a long time since I've seen Rush Hour 1. <laughs> okay, I recommend you go see it. I can't remember which one they make Jackie Chan say the N word, but uh, yeah, it is it is a large plot point of the first movie. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean it was it was it would have been in the air. It would have been a massive influence on all art around this time, I would think. Yeah, and it and it's this interesting point where it's like obviously the action cinema that Hong Kong is known for is on the downside. In the nineties, you've got a lot more of this kind of art cinema coming up. Obviously, there's a, a wuxia revival in the early 2000s with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Hero and House of Blind Daggers. You have Stephen Chow having like massive success in the early 2000s as well. But when we talk about like cinema from China now, it isn't you don't necessarily put the disclaimer of like Hong Kong cinema. It's very much like these are movies that China has made or these are movies that China has funded and China is deciding whether or not to release like new Marvel movies over there and stuff like that. And I don't know if there was something about Hong Kong that kind of uniquely allowed creativity to happen just because of that massive amount of Western influence that wasn't as impactful on mainland China at the time that allowed kind of this burgeoning energy of, of creativity. But like, yeah, it is I mean, a shame that like, I don't, like when, when we talk about like Asian cinema and like up and coming movies now, it feels like China's kind of pivoted more into big blockbuster stuff or big crowd pleasing things. Like you look at the highest grossing movies the last couple of years in China and it's like Hey Mom, which is a a, a big like crowd pleasing comedy. Yeah. And the interesting independent or like the interesting vibe cinema that we really love is coming more from your your South Koreas and your Japans. Yes, when traditionally Hong Kong was was leading the way in like just kicking the ass of all other like Asian cinema, basically. Um, well, maybe that's an oversimplification, but yeah, you know, it, it it went from massively influential, and I would imagine China reabsorbing them and clamping down on their right to be um, <laughs> had a bit of an impact on that, and then what is allowed to be released and whatnot. And you know, I think announced either yesterday or the day before. There are going to be massive censorship rules that are going to basically remove many Hong Kong films from existence, and that is absolutely tragic. Uh, I, it makes me glad that I've got my like one car white box set because, like, I do think that this is like, and I'm not, I'm not going to say something wanky like I'm glad that we get to highlight this little known director because obviously, like, <laughs> if you know films, you know one car white is like yeah. an absolute tightness in them. But like, I am glad that we have given the spotlight to this kind of thing like yeah. I, we, we don't have too many of these kind of movies on the list like yeah. you look at the last 10 movies we've done and it's like all massive crowd pleasing hits but like I'm happy to have got my two wanky like critical claim horror movies on this list this time and, yeah. and even then like, teaser for the future teaser for the future but even <laughs> this is like it's such a 
happy vibey movie. Like, yeah. like this isn't heavy at all. This is just pure joy and romance for 103 minutes or whatever. Yeah. No velociraptors though. So no velociraptors. Yeah. No. Yeah. But thank you for pursuing this. Thank you for finding a way to watch this movie. I did think it was going to be <laughs> difficult, but we we have persevered. That's cool. Um, you know, we we but, do we we pull out all the stops for this podcast. But Matthew, yeah, do you want to give our listeners a hint of what we're doing next week? Uh, I'm probably not going to enjoy myself <laughs> because uh, the main one I don't like is Quentin Tarantino. The other quite major Western director who is adored, who I do not really care for, is uh, Timothy Burton. Uh, we will, we'll be looking at Ed Wood, uh, starring you know an actor he seldom worked with, Jonathan Depp. We do have Bill Murray though. Yeah. I'm hoping that powers us through, because, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes for us, but I have some things on this list that I'm ecstatic that we're going to get to cover, so you got to pick your battles, and uh, I had a good time with Chunking Express, and I'm hoping to have a better time than I'm expecting with Edward. Uh, it's been a long time. Have you, have you, you haven't seen Edward in a long I, time? Yeah, no, very long time. Like, I, once I, upon I, a time, I, I probably would have tried to like Tim Burton. Yeah, then it turned out I was fighting a losing battle, and I can't stand him for the most part. But I, I do think that, like this is before Tim Burton yeah, goes yeah, 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 full yeah. ascends up his rectum. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's the way of putting it. Yeah, and like not to say that's why I would allow it to be on the list because you know we like a nice chill time there. We want each other to have fun, um, but it's it's more up my alley, I think, than uh, what will become what you think of when you think of uh, Tim Burton. You know, I, I did suggest Edward Scissorhands or anything like that for, for the particular reason that like Edward is probably Tim Burton's masterpiece, mm. but also just the fact that like it's the least emblematic of where he goes, and it's the kind of thing that I wish Tim Burton carried on doing rather than yeah. the... Put Johnny Depp and prosthetics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I mean, like he had... I mean, obviously, like you have talked Tim Burton on this network before uh-huh. with with the two Batman movies, so it'll yeah. be interesting to see whether or not his immediate follow-up to Batman Returns is <laughs> how that plays in your opinion. Um, <laughs> but, like, we're nearing the end of, like, this very knee-heavy opening stretch of the podcast. Uh, ben, Ben, Ben. Matt, Ben. Matt, Matt. Ben, Ben, Ben. Matt. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> this is true. Uh, there is a very clean first half, second half kind of split to this. So if if you've been really enjoying the podcast so far, strap in, everybody. <laughs> right, but thank you. And and to sign off, Matthew, will there be movies? On the last day of British rule of Hong Kong in 1997, Detective Inspector Lee of the Hong Kong Police Force leads a raid at the war... This is the plot description of Russia R1. I'll keep going, you just fade me out. Hoping yeah. to arrest the unidentified anonymous crime lord, Chantal. He only finds Sang, Juntao's right-hand man, who escapes in a boat. Lee recovers numerous Chinese cultural treasures stolen by Juntao, which he presents in a farewell to the party. I didn't know, and I did it for so long.